Okay, if you take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 34, I've been doing this as we've gone through the series of the glory of God in everyday life, how that works out and is seen, but uh, we've been working on this statement that is seen throughout the Old Testament and even parts of it uh, paraphrased, but you have whole quotations of it, and it seems to be what some call the mantra or official creed of the nation of Israel when it came to understanding their God. Uh, they had this memorized, and uh, it was something that uh, they would cling to. And we're going to see someone who actually was well acquainted with it. And uh, yeah, well, he, he didn't like what it actually had to say. But uh, I want us to start verse 6. We're just going to go through this. Uh, hopefully, uh, you're looking at it more than just the time here, uh, but uh, that uh, in your time of uh, Bible study or reading that you're just kind of working through this, but uh, hopefully you've got this in your mind, what God is like. It's his own declaration of his glory, who he is. So we'll start in the middle there uh, in verse number six, and we'll go through verse number seven. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that by will no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the Father upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. Did I just misquote that? I did. I'm sorry. But uh, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. <clears throat> I want you to turn to the passage that we looked at last week, Psalm 145, because that is going to then leapfrog into our study. So if you'd go ahead and look at Psalm 145 and uh, just want us to consider a story that happened uh, about 12 years ago. So back in, I believe it was 2009 or 2008, there was a person who was, uh, when it came to power in the media and in society, wielded great influence, and the woman's name was Oprah. And uh, she was known for a number of things uh, she was capable of doing. As a Chicagoan, it shocked me that she was able to shut down Michigan Avenue for a day for one of her shows. Uh, but uh, she wielded a lot of uh, sway when it came to people's opinions. If you got a uh, thumbs up or a uh, approval by Oprah, then suddenly your product was going to be the most perfect thing ever in the history of mankind or womankind. But uh, what happened back in 2009 was a huge blunder on the part of several large corporations, one of them being Oprah's Corporation and the other one being Kentucky Fried Chicken. Because Kentucky Fried Chicken uh, got together with Oprah and what Oprah did in May of that year uh, was to announce the fact that there was going to be a coupon on her website that was going to be for two pieces of grilled chicken, two sides, and a biscuit for free from Kentucky Fried Chicken. 
And it was a promotion because there was this desire that people would eat healthier and grilled chicken was kind of the thing back in the early 2000s that was the new healthier choice rather than fried chicken and all of this. And so uh, this deal was quite incredible. And they have one day for the website to, for this uh, coupon to be on there and it basically crashed the website as they tried to get the coupon printed off and go into the KFC. Problem was is that they weren't anticipating over 10 million people to print this coupon. This is a giveaway that would have given people, it would have cost a Kentucky Fried Chicken over $64 million in free products that they would hand out. Stores ran out of product. There was others that just said, sorry, we're at the point that we're not serving this anymore. There's really one person, they just said, you know, I'm a, a big person. I like to eat. I'm kind of disappointed. I got to go to McDonald's now. Uh, I kind of missed the whole point of, you know, eating this grilled chicken and, and healthier food. But it got to the point where Kentucky Fried Chicken just announced the fact, sorry, we're not honoring that coupon. And uh, they said, we'll, we'll try and come up with something else, but we're not going to honor that coupon. It just it was beyond what we even expected would happen. Eventually, this went to the courts. The Kentucky Fried Chicken lost and ended up having to honor the coupons that they had. So eventually, they honored 10 million coupons for free meals at uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Now, here you have two, what we would say, business giants making a mistake and a claim on what they could do as far as their goodness. What they could do for people that would be kind or nice or, well, for their benefit. And at times, we're kind of skeptical because we know what human beings are like. And when it comes to sometimes what we read in God's Word, we look at it in the light of what we know from our world and ourselves. Last week, we looked at Psalm 145, which is the third Psalm of David, that you find this statement about the Lord being one of compassion and long-suffering and the like in the middle of a a whole psalm that is calling for people to praise the Lord. In fact, all of creation to praise the Lord. But in the middle of that is where David quoted the passage, this statement of God, and he kind of edits it. He adds things to it. It's not that they're false. He adds things to it, uh, and it makes this statement something to remind us that this is a universal statement for all people. Let's look at Psalm 145 and verse 8. It says this, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. Verse 9, The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. And then the statement, all thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. And so what the psalmist here is stating is that God's compassion and God's mercy and God's graciousness is something that he shows to all people, not a select, just a select group. And you say, well, was this something that people would disagree with? Well, there were people in their thinking that would think that God was not and wouldn't be compassionate to certain groups of people. 
and you say to what kind of people well this passage and this idea of god being gracious and long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth to all people is something that's at the heart of the book of jonah i want you to turn to jonah and we're going to look at chapter three and chapter four i I think we're somewhat familiar with the story but i want us to just at least uh, remind ourselves of some of the details that are actually important on this issue is god gracious to certain people in chapter one it makes the statement that the lord calls jonah to go and it just simply says this in verse two his call is this arise go to nineveh the great city and cry against it for their wickedness is come up before me but jonah does the exact opposite he flees across the ocean exactly west from where assyria would be at uh, to go to tarshish which is modern day spain he doesn't want to do it now you say why would this uh, be something well this book was written jonah was written in a time of great prosperity for the 10 northern tribes it's one of the better times for the 10 northern tribes it's not that the king that they had at the time was a great moral king but god just seemed to be gracious to these 10 northern tribes and so jonah prophesied during this time frame uh, about 760 bc where god was doing good things for the nation of israel but if you were to take a poll of the people in the nation of israel to talk about their worst enemy or the people that they were most afraid of they would all in unison call out the assyrians the assyrians were one of two world powers uh, egypt being one of them assyria being the other and the problem was is for the nation of israel they tended to be the battleground for these two countries battles would be fought in and around their country between these two competing powers and at different times uh different uh ones would be stronger than the other but the assyrians were known for their exceptional cruelty when you read history books and you hear accounts of what uh, they were known for especially as uh, you get uh, along in their history was that they ruled by terror when they conquered territories they made sure that those people that were there knew who was in charge and that they wanted to frighten people into complete submission to who they were you can read accounts of when they would take over cities that they would uh, take them uh, over and they would take people and just merely behead them or flay the skin off their bodies while they were alive or cut parts off and we could go on and on to the cruelty that they had for just human life they were terrorists in the extreme when it came to their conquering of other people There was nothing pleasant about them in fact as you see even in the description of jonah they're described as violent people that's how god describes them it's not the israeli or the jewish perception at this time god says yes they are a violent group of people jonah was called to go and to preach to them and as you go through the story it's kind of working up that god has compassion on people god has compassion and mercy for an individual by the name of jonah 
Here you have Jonah, an individual who is supposed to be doing the work of God, is part of God's people, was God's prophet, and he doesn't do what God calls him to do. And even though he's cast into the waters, God in his graciousness prepares a fish for Jonah to A, protect him, but also be a teaching opportunity for Jonah to realize how great God is and to joy in God's salvation, God's goodness. You can see in Jonah 1 also that God is gracious to uh, the sailors on the ship. You think about this, you have these sailors in that culture, just as today, uh, some of the rougher characters of society. But as you see this whole story go along, they begin to recognize that this is a prophet of the Lord and they cast in uh, Jonah into the water but you look at them in verse number 14 they cry unto the Lord and they say we beseech thee O Lord we beseech thee let us not perish for this man's life lay not upon us innocent blood for thou Lord doth thou Lord hast done as it pleased thee and they cast Jonah in and the sea ceased from raging and then it says in verse 16 and the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows you see in this just little picture in this boat that's in the middle of the ocean that these men come to God, God's gracious to them. Even though they're sailors, God is hearing their cry and has compassion upon them. So that's kind of a, a preview as you read the story of Jonah of God's graciousness and compassion for people, for Jonah, for men in a boat in the midst of a storm. But then you get to Jonah chapter 3 and you have this account where Jonah comes and he preaches a message even though it's not something he seems to be too, too excited about preaching. He goes through and you find the message in chapter 3 and verse number 4 that Jonah goes through the city and it takes a day's journey for him to go across the city, but he just simply says this, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Not much explanation, not much detail. It's just that he kind of goes through and warns, judgment is coming. Doesn't even really seem to be a proclamation to God or anything uh, that they call upon God. It's just that he's announcing judgment to these people. But you look at verse 5, and you think about this city of Nineveh. And it responds in a way that you'd go, well, wicked, violent people would never respond this way. Verse 5, so the people of Nineveh believed God. They actually believed what God said. And proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth, and from the greatest of them, even to the least of them, the word came unto the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, laid his robe from him, covered him with sackcloth, and sat down in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands." Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away his, from his fierce anger that we perish not? 
It says in verse 10, and God saw their works and they turned from their evil way and God repented of the evil that he had said unto them he would do unto them and he did it not. There's a play on words here that's actually going to come into play, but I need to bring it up now because it is going to be something later on in the sermon you just need to be aware of that there's another connection See, when the king here calls upon God to, well, perhaps notice and repent, that word is an unusual word that elsewhere is translated Nahum or Nahim. The idea of relenting is to lay off or to actually bring comfort to people. That God goes back and stays what he's going to do and he, well, provides comfort to people who are undeserving of comfort. Aid to that. He relents from this. One has put it this way, Nineveh repents, God relents. Problem is, is we're going to see that Jonah resents what God does. See, as you look at history in this time frame where Jonah would have come, the king that was in charge had been a king over a not-so-good tenure as king. During his time frame, as best as they can figure out uh, from history, at least of what we have recorded, that there had been a plague in 765 and a plague in 759, uh, that caused uh, both uh, not only uh, people to be sick, but a famine to occur that caused more dying. There was rioting that took place. Their army lost uh, a number of battles to a nearby enemy. And besides all of that, the nation had had uh, something happen that for them uh, would have caused great superstition uh, and uh, in their own land about what was going on. There was a total eclipse darkness on the land the sun suddenly not shining and so all of these things kind of led to the point for these people to figure out something maybe is not right and then you have this prophet who goes through the town and i've always wondered what jonah looked like after being three days in the belly of a whale what he looked like perhaps very bleached bleached hair i have i've just wondered and he goes through and preaches this message and these people do exactly what you would hope any person would do they respond in great sorrow they do everything that they know as far as their understanding that they need to do to appease god and to say we're wrong and we are in trouble maybe perhaps god will relent because we've recognized the fact that we are, well, sinners. And some of these things are things that we have caused. Now you go through all of this and you find that God is gracious, that he relents. He holds off. Now he does this for his own people. I mean, we're looking at this passage from Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, and it's in the midst of this whole larger story where the people worshipped a golden calf. 
God's people had the opportunity to hear God, to see his display, and yet they're going to make themselves a golden calf, and God's going to destroy the nation and start a new one with Moses, and Moses pleads with God to stop. And then you have this statement in Exodus chapter 32 where it says this, where where he calls God and reminds him of the fact, wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, for mischief did he, God, bring them out to slay them in the mountains, to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. That word repent there is the word Nahum. Relent. Show comfort to your people who are undeserving of it. See, God would do this for his own people. He relents. He does not give them the judgment. But you see here, God doing the very same thing for some of the most violent, ungodly, unchristian people in the history of mankind. God shows compassion on them. He shows abundance of mercy and grace. And so what you have is that God is one who shows compassion at least you see it here, on all. Not just a select few. Not just an elite. No, he does this. And you see the story that as you go into chapter 4 and verse 1, it says this, it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was very angry. Literally, if you were to read this in the Hebrew, it was evil to Jonah with evil evil great evil i mean he is not happy this is something evil to him and he is really upset and he's angered by this that he feels like it is completely wrong there's no other way greater way to state the fact that he's upset what pleased god displeased jonah and you see jonah go and and sit outside the city you find him as he goes and he's in the shadow as you look in verse 5 that he went out of the city, sat on the east side of the city, there made him a booth or a tent, sat in the shadow of it till he might see what became of the city. I mean, what he is doing is that one is quoted this way, Jonah finds that the time fuse does not work on the prophetic bomb that he planted in Nineveh. He knows what this country has done to some of his fellow kinsmen he knows what these people have done and so he goes through preaching this message and he's kind of hoping i hope god does this i mean why would jonah be like this and and there's multiple reasons i mean he could have had a nationalistic pride he's a jew these are Assyrians. they're not god's people that could have been a part of it he could have had prophetic insight and knew what Assyria would eventually do to Israel. You have to remember that in Israel's history, uh, it was prophesied that this would happen, that Assyria would come through and eventually take the 10 northern tribes and haul them away. It could have been that he was hoping that this would stop that. Perhaps in his own mind, he's thinking that he's a failure. He's preached this message, he's declared this, and yet it's not going to happen. I mean, why has he done this, gone through and said all this, and it's not going to be true? 
But you do get an expression of why, out of his own mouth, that he's kind of upset. You look at verse number two, and it says this about Jonah. He prayed unto the Lord. So he actually does talk with God. And he said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? No, I don't want to go to Assyria because this is what's going to happen. You'll be nice to them. Therefore, I fled before uh, unto Tarshish. And here's why. For I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. He's quoting what God declared about himself to Moses. And what he's simply declaring as he looks at this, it's kind of a selfishness as you read through this statement nine times in the original language, he's referring to me or I, I or my and that. So it's really, you can see it's all about him and his own country, uh, but he's not so much concerned with what God said, though he quotes basically what God has said. That God is a God who is benevolent when it says it's gracious, that he's benevolent. He does good to people who are completely undeserving, have done nothing to merit God's goodness. That he is compassionate, which is the idea of a mother being moved towards her own children. Mother is always the one that you find to be the, the truly compassionate one for the children and grandchildren. It's not to say that fathers and grandfathers aren't moved towards their grandchildren, but you just find a motherly concern. And that's what you have about God is that he is moved, not just to his own people, but to all people that he's moved with a compassion, like a mother for a child. That God is slow to anger, which the and that's going to play a role here as we look at uh, another passage, that God is slow to anger. The, the, the term, the Hebrewism behind this, he's long of nostril, he's got a long nose. But the idea is that he takes a big breath. He's able to hold in his response for a long period of time. It speaks of God's patience and long-suffering, which... Nineveh is an obvious recipient of in this passage, but even for longer than that. And that as you look at this, that God is, as he is quoted here, that he is full of great kindness. The idea there is this hesed, which is this loyalty that leads to redemption, that God has unfailing love and unfailing kindness for people. And so what does God do? Well, Verse number two, he repentest or relentest. There's that term Nahum again. He repents of evil. One has said this, amazingly, Jonah did not use these words in praise to the Lord, but as a tirade against him. He says, here's what you said about yourself, and I'm really not happy with that. I don't like that. Jonah is highly critical of the divine attributes and views them as a regrettable weakness in God's divine character. You say, what is Jonah's response? Well, it's much like Elijah. 
Look at verse 3. I mean, he, he thinks God's a failure, that there's weakness in God. So he just simply declares this, Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now you read that, and it sounds very similar to another prophet, one we've heard preached about on Sunday evenings recently, one by the name of Elijah. But remember the difference in what they're praying for why they're praying for lord take my life elijah though he's having a pity party he's upset that he feels like the whole nation of israel isn't worshiping the lord he's complaining that i'm the only one that seems to be worshiping god and no one else seems to be doing this you might as well take my life now so he's complaining about the fact of people failing to worship god Why is Jonah praying for the fact of God to take his life? That there are actually people moving to God, putting their faith, their confidence, their trust in God, and he's upset about that, and he can't believe it. As you find Jonah, his bad theology led to despair. If the Israelites had not had such a limited understanding of their God, an understanding that, among other things, tied together much too closely faith in God and their political prosperity, they would have been better enabled to cope with the realities of life. You know, many of the Jews were thinking that God was good to them and gave them prosperity during which Jonah was living because that they were connected with God. That God was good to them because they kind of followed God. Jonah had a real problem grasping how it was that the Lord could act in this way. He had forgotten just how undeserving Israel was. I mean, think about when God talks about why he chose the nation of Israel out of all the nations, and he says this, it wasn't because you were great, and it wasn't because you were mighty, and it wasn't because you were uh, a nation of repute in the world. In fact, he almost hints at the fact that you were a nothing. In the book of Joshua, when it's talking about uh, Abraham, who was the father of the Jews, and what he was doing before God called him, it says that he was worshiping other gods on the other side of the flood, on the other side of the Euphrates. He was worshiping false gods. So if you think about this, Israel in their past was a nation just like Assyria. Just like the city of Nineveh, they were, well, people who didn't worship God, and yet God was gracious, full of compassion for them, long-suffering as you follow Israel's history in the Exodus, and God was good to them. Jonah found fault with God for saving those he felt to be beyond the circle of redemption. He was angry with God for acting in a way that he, Jonah, did not understand or approve. At, root, at the root, Jonah was finding fault with God for being the way he is. I don't like the way you are, God. Appointing himself theological advisor to the Almighty, Jonah pronounces himself completely out of sympathy with divine policy over my dead body is his vehement reaction to God's grace. Himself forgiven, he cannot accept that non-Israelites should be forgiven too. 
I mean, just think about in chapter 2, he's an individual who ran from God, disobeyed God, and he knows who God is. God had been compassionate to him. Here you have a whole group of people that really don't know who God is. They're, they're polytheists. They're worshiping a whole bunch of gods. And when God proclaims his message amongst these people, they actually believe it with very little knowledge of who God is. And God's compassionate to them. Thankfully, what you find in verse number four and following, the Lord just simply responds and he doesn't blast with heat in the sense of fire, but he does give Jonah heat. Dost thou well to be angry? Are you doing right in being angry at what I'm like and who I am? That you're seeing this displayed on a much larger scale than you ever expected, how I could be compassionate and gracious and kind and gentle and good and long-suffering? I mean, this whole book, as you get down to the end of it, is really a book not so much about the life of Jonah, but is a book that is rebuking the nation of Israel. This is a book where you finally have somebody in the nation of Israel who's doing what God intended to do, Jonah, who's going to the nations with the message that there's a God. A single God who is one who has created the world and that he is to be worshipped and praised. You finally have someone doing that. For the history of the nation of Israel, you don't see very much of that going on where Israel's going to the nations proclaiming the fact that there is a God that is worthy of praise and worthy of worship. When you get to the end of the story and you just find the compassion of God as he goes through and he, you have this whole story where this uh, gourd suddenly grows up and it comes over Jonah and covers him from the heat of the day, but then there's this worm that's prepared, much like the whale had been prepared. You've got this worm that's prepared who comes along and eats uh, this gourd and the sun beats down on uh, Jonah, and there's this vehement east wind. The sun beats down upon his head. He fainted. He wished himself to die. And God said to Jonah, Dost thou well to be angry for the gourd? I mean, he's more upset about the destruction of the gourd than he is about the possibility of people dying. Verse 10, the Lord said, Thou hast had pity on the gourd for which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow. You've done nothing to make that thing and make it grow. Which came up a night and perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein there are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand? And then kind of a surprising statement, and also much cattle. But he says, would you have me destroy a city in which there's 120,000 people that can't even figure out what their right and left hand is? Now, that's not saying you're directionally challenged, okay? What you're talking about is that you're either dealing with young people that don't even know what's going on. We're talking toddlers here, one- and two-year-olds, three-year-olds, babies, or people perhaps who are handicapped, and he says, there's 120,000 people here who really don't even have an understanding of right and wrong. They don't have the capability mentally to handle this type of thing. And would you have me destroy them? 
And would you have me destroy innocent animals that have done nothing? Really, Jonah? I mean, it ends with this question, does God have a right to be compassionate upon his creation? All of it? The answer is absolutely. Even even the worst of his creation, he shows compassion and mercy to, and he's got a right to do it. I mean, I think of this in the modern sense. There are people in our world today that we get so frustrated with because they are so violent and cruel, and your mindset is this, God, why are you so nice to them? Let them have it. Bring down vengeance upon them, and we forget about the fact that we were a sinner just like they were, and God was merciful to us. He was long-suffering to us. He extended mercy longer than we deserve, and he did this for us. We were sinners just like they were, but you go, well, they're more violent than I am. No, you were a sinner just like them, and God was compassionate and merciful, and he was moved towards you. So why can't he be merciful to others in his creation? And so you have this story that takes place in 760 where God stays judgment on the city of Nineveh. He doesn't destroy it like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. He keeps this city going. And that might be the end of the story. But there's another book in your Bible that's directly addressed to the city of Nineveh. And maybe you can guess what book it is. I've said its name several times to this point. It's the book of Nahum. I want you to turn over to the book of Nahum. It's kind of interesting as you go to these two books, one Jonah that's written to the city of Nineveh, it ends with a question. You read the book of Nahum, which is addressed to Nineveh, it ends with a question too. It's kind of an interesting connection there. But you have these two books that their whole purpose is just talking about attitudes toward Nineveh and what God is doing towards this. And you start off in Nahum chapter 1, verse 1, and it just simply says, the burden of Nineveh. Wait a second. It sounds like things have changed. See, what had changed is that we know that this book is written at least 100 years after Jonah, uh, perhaps about 150 years after Jonah. By that time, uh, Assyria had become a great warring power. They were everywhere all the time causing havoc everywhere, warring with everybody. And the question comes, is God always compassionate and merciful and long-suffering? Does he just put off his judgment and just ignore sin? And some people have said this, what Jonah is dealing with is that he's dealing with that passage in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6, where it's talking about all those nice characteristics of God. He's long-suffering, he's compassionate, he's abundant in goodness and truth, he is forgiving of sin and transgression and iniquity, and he does those things, and that Jonah deals with that aspect of the character of God. But what you see in Nahum is the other side of God's character. That he is a God who will not let sin go unpunished. That he will visit the iniquity of the fathers. That he will 
judge sin. God is just not up there going, I'll ignore sin and, you know, and think about this eternally. I'll ignore everybody's sin and let them in. There is a side of God's character where he will judge. And as you read this, this statement, this vision of Nahum, it starts off in verse number two with this statement that God is jealous. Now you've heard that in this sermon series, you've heard that statement before about God. Because we started the series off and we said we're going to talk about the character of God as he reveals it and as he declares himself to be. And one of the first ways that God said, here's what I'm like, is that he gave the people the Ten Commandments. He talked to the nation of Israel and said, this is what I want you to do as my people as a reflection of what I'm like. And the second commandment goes this way, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercies unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments see there in that statement where god starts revealing himself he's saying this is that i am a god that am jealous about what you and how you view me I'm not going to share what I'm like with my creation, with silver and gold and wood and stone and shaped things. That's not what I'm like. And what you have with the nation of Assyria is that you have a nation that had, well, repented and turned to God, worshiped only Him uh, back in the time of Jonah, but they've gone back full force and they are worshiping all sorts of idols and all sorts of ugly gods as part of their worship. And what they're doing is that they're not giving God the glory that He's deserving of. No, they're going their own way. They're misrepresenting what God is like. They've turned from Him. They're worshiping the creature rather than the Creator. They're doing what Romans 1 talks about. And so God starts with this statement, God is jealous. I mean, that's, that's what's playing here, statements that God has made about his own glory. And the Lord revengeth, the Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. You know, God does judge sin. But then in the midst of this, all of a sudden, in verse 3, you have this. The Lord is slow to anger. and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked the lord hath his way in the whirlwind and the storm the clouds and the dust of his feet a rebuke of the sea maketh it dry drieth up the rivers bashan languisheth carmel and the flower of lebanon languisheth the mountains quake at him and the hills melt and the earth is burned at his presence yea the world and all that dwell therein who can stand before his indignation and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger his fury is poured out like fire. The rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he that knoweth them that trust in him. I mean, in the midst of this, what God declares is this, I will not let sin go. I have to judge sin. 
I have declared this, a soul that sinneth, it shall die. And God can't let sin go and, and run. He is a God, though, that is slow to anger. As you read this passage in Nahum and compare it to when Jonah was written, God gave him at least 100 years, if not 150 years beyond what they deserved. He's great in power, but he can't acquit the wicked. But even in the midst of judging a group of people that he is going to use them to judge others, but then bring them to almost immediate destruction. When you talk about the fall of the Assyrian Empire, it's almost instantaneous. It's unexpected in some ways. In 6.12, that God does this. In the midst of this, God just makes this statement, the Lord is still good. Even though God judges, God is still good. He's good to those, as you look at this, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knoweth them that trust in Him. God's able to do good, even though you have the chaos of what's going to happen in this book. You read it, it's like going in the midst of a storm and there's this chaos almost of battle where God's declaring, I am going to judge the Assyrians. But in the midst of all that judgment that's taking place, there's still this other side of God's character. The Lord's good. The Lord is kind. The Lord is gracious to those that know him. See, what we see in the story of Jonah and the story of Nahum is this perfect balance of God. That God, yes, is compassionate with everyone. Even Ninevites. But also, there's the other side of this, that God judges sin. Even his own people, as he uses the Assyrians to do some of that judging, he uses the Assyrians to judge Israel's sin, but he also judges the Assyrians' sin. But in the midst of this, there is this hint. God is good to those that know him. Eternally good. And for us, we cannot be like Jonah. I mean, as you look at these books, and Jonah, the gracious side of long-suffering of the Lord was expressed towards Nineveh, given a warning and time to repent. The Ninevites did repent, and the Lord saved the city. And Nahum, however, the judgmental side of long-suffering, the fact that judgment is increased when people reject God's extended grace, is expressed towards a, the city of Nineveh years later. And so for us, we, we need to understand not to abuse certain characteristics of God and say they are for us alone and not for everybody else. And yet then think there aren't certain things that are for us, but are for everyone else. There is this attitude that sometimes we think judgment's not for us because we're God's people. It's kind of the argument that the nation of Israel has in the Gospels where they're thinking, we'll never be judged because we're God's people. We're the children of Abraham. And the answer is, God will judge sin. He will do it. It doesn't matter if you're part of his people or part of the nations. It doesn't matter. He still will judge sin. 
But yet God, you may say, well, God's only supposed to be nice to me and, well, mean to everybody else. And the Lord has to remind people in the Sermon on the Mount that he has his son on both the evil and the good, and he causes rain to fall on both those that are evil and those that are good. See, our problem is not God's character. Our problem as people is oftentimes the attitude of Jonah where we think God got this limited and we've set off boundary lines on how God is and who he is, but we forget that God's infinite in all of his ways and his characteristics. And we may put up fences, but God crosses those fences because he does not have those boundaries that we have in our own mind and our own feeling and our own emotions put up. No, God is gracious to all, he's merciful to all, and he judges all. And we have to be aware to not be limiting what God says, but take God at his word of who he is. That there's this balance of what God is like. And live as saying, okay, this applies to me. These statements apply to my neighbor down the street. And it applies to the dictator who's on the other side of the globe that God is gracious to them, God is good to them, but God will also judge them just as he will do for us. He'll be good to us and gracious to us, but he still also will judge us for our sin. So let's not limit God in our own theological box, but give him the infinite characteristics that he has, that he's able to apply them as needed in the world that we live in and not limit who he is. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for the story of Jonah and Nahum, that you eventually do judge, that you are a God who can be long-suffering for a time, but you can't let sin go unpunished. But on the other hand, that you are a gracious God and you can extend us graciousness and mercy for all eternity because your son has taken upon himself the eternal punishment that we deserved. But we still can be judged and chastened for our sins that we do, that you don't let us run and do whatever we want to do, that you do judge and visit us at times. But even at times in your judgment, you're good. You're gracious. You hold back what we really should get. So let us uh, not, in our minds, uh, limit what you say about yourself. But we may just trust in the fact that you are an infinite, all-wise God, that you're able to, in the midst of a storm, deliver us and save us and rescue us and show compassion. And sometimes you can deliver us uh, right out of the midst of something that we have done where we're deserving of judgment but sometimes you judge us. So to help us to have the balance in our mind and know you better as we apply your character to all of life. And this we pray in your son's name.